Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS issues. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a very amazing mother on the show. Her name is Kara Witkowski from Chicago, Illinois. She's the mother of James Riker Beale and has been not only seeking, but voicing justice for his murder. Kara's stamina in this case has proved that she's a champion for demanding justice for her son. There has been so much collusion in this case. There has been so much deceit in railroading this mother. Justice needs to be brought forth as she also has a daughter, Sasha, to protect. Kara was chastised by the family court system for trying to protect her children from an abuser who pulled the parental alienation card in the courtroom to get custody. What unfolded next was an egregious act of violence upon a two-year-old. The system colluded and failed Kara, James, and Sasha via guardian ad litems, DCFS, attorneys, and judges. And more importantly, which is very interesting, is that the, the uh, guardian ad litems, Julia Pucci and Julie Pertle, removed themselves from this case, as well as Judge Dalton, he removed himself as a family court judge, as well as Judge Cruz, he removed himself as well. There's a lot to go on with this case, and I'm going to let Kara Witkowski speak. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. I love going on these shows. I love talking about the corruption that there is in family court and what we can do to um, help that problem and to just expose, expose, expose. Exposure is the only thing that's going to stop these horrible things from happening because once you start exposing, you know, you just go down the rabbit hole of all these different networks and these different sources of the corruption and of the evil that is occurring to families everywhere in children. Um, so the way my story starts is I was sexually assaulted on March 19th by my ex. This was the second time that he had sexually assaulted me. The first time he had sexually assaulted me was between August and September of um, the prior, it was about nine months before um, this assault had happened. And he had basically told me that he had multiple personality disorder, that he had narcissistic personality disorder, and that he was sexually abused by a priest when he was a um, when he was a kid. So he was telling me like, please let me get help, and begging me to let him get help so that he could still be with the kids and we could still live together, which I agreed to. But I told him I couldn't be in a relationship with him and I was going to see other people because that's not something that I I could do. Um, he had traumatized me too much and it it was causing me a lot of pain to even be near him so he ended up sexually assaulting me again like i said on march 19th when he had sexually assaulted me again um i was in my room my son was in the very next room and i had just put my son down in his pack and play and i had went to go into our room uh he was supposed to be gone that whole night and he was supposed to be working and um, see, being with a friend, so he wasn't supposed to be home at all. So I was just, you know, laying in bed. I was on my phone, um, and I heard the door, and the door opened, and he came in, and he threw me down, and he raped me, and he sodomized me, and I was screaming, and I was crying, and I was trying to pull myself out from under him. Um, we only had a mattress, so I was grabbing the edge of the mattress, trying to 
pull myself out from under him and I kept telling him to stop and he told me he wasn't going to stop until he came and he continued um, to rape me um, and he was pushing my face into the um, the mattress to the point where I could not breathe and um, finally when he did stop and he pulled out when he had finished. Uh, I ran into the bathroom and I was crying and he actually opened the door and he came in after me and he washed his hands in the sink and then he flicked the water in my face and he, uh, he left me there. So he had left me there and I had, um, I had made some phone calls trying to figure things out. Um, he was still messaging me on uh, my phone and he was basically acting like nothing had happened. He was even asking me like if I wanted to go to some flower show with him. It was absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. And um, the next day we took our kids to go to his dad's house for breakfast. And when we took our kids to go to his dad's house for breakfast, he disappeared. And I asked him like where he had been and he said that he went to therapy. So when he was telling me that he went to therapy, he told me basically that he, um, he told his therapist everything he did to me and his therapist said he had a disassociative fugue state and that um, his other personality had taken over and like all this, all this stuff that, you know, most people just can't even understand. And, um, you know, at that point, I just, uh, I was listening to him and trying to be as supportive as I could regarding everything. But of course, you know, like, I was terrified. This man had threatened to kill me. He had threatened to lock me in the attic before the rape. Um, and if I didn't comply with it, he was going to keep me in the attic. So he had threatened to kill me. He had threatened to hurt my kids. He had threatened to leave with the kids and go to Poland because he had EU citizenship and I would never see them again. Um, one threat I'll never forget is when uh, he told me that if I ever left him, he would, I would have to explain to the police how a TV fell on top of me 10 times. Um, another threat I'll never forget is when he said he was going to push me off the top of the stairs of our Elgin house. So he was increasingly getting violent. He was increasingly getting scary. And I had made plans to go be with my friend in uh, New Hampshire. And I was going to bring the kids to separate us for about a week until we could figure out what we were going to do, separation, whatever it was we were going to do. But I needed to create some space to get safe at that point. So the next day I had work and the plan was that I was going to go um, to the airport right after work. And my boss was even going to take me. And Tom ends up coming to my job and confronting me. Uh, he had seen the itinerary. Um, so he had basically gotten into my email. He found the airline tickets. He found the itinerary. And he confronted me at work. And he said, like, how could you do the one thing that would make me kill myself? And I told him, well, you kept raping me and threatening to kill me. What was I supposed to do? And um, he said he wanted to talk to me alone in the car and he wouldn't stop telling me he wanted me to go alone with him in the car. And, um, I would not go with him. 
and my boss was telling me not to go with him. He did this in front of my boss, my client, um, my client's husband, and my boss's husband. Um, and after uh, he finally left, I went into the bathroom and he called me and he told me, well, now that we were finally over, he could tell me the truth. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? Um, and he had told me he, like he was going to therapy for nine months. That was the only reason I even let him live in the house was because he was saying he went to therapy. So on the phone, he told me he had never been to therapy. He didn't suffer from multiple personality disorder. He made up everything just to keep raping. me. And at that point I was like, all right, I'm going to the police because I don't feel sorry for you. You've been lying to me. You've been trying to feed off of my, um, compassion and, you know, I was just done. So I went to the police, I let them know everything, I showed them the messages and everything, and due to him literally admitting to the rapes, um, he, uh, they actually took it like to the state's attorney, and the state's attorney was going to review it and everything. Well, he was arrested, and he was, um, you know, put into custody when he was arrested, and so we have a car that we shared together. I had bought the car with my money. And I had the credit for the car, but he was the one who drove it. I don't drive because of a medical condition. Mm -hmm. So they returned the car to me. Um, and they basically told me to get an order of protection against him. That was the only thing I could do at that point was like to go get an order of protection against him. So that started basically the whole court case. So when they had given me my car, he had left his hard drive in the trunk of the car. So it was this huge hard drive that I'd seen before, but like, I never thought to look at it or care about it because I mean, at that point I had trusted him, but this man made up serious mental illnesses just so he could sexually assault me. Then you get curious, obviously. So I took the hard drive on, uh, into my house and I had some friends over with me who were helping me out. Um, while he was, you know, in custody and we looked at the hard drive on the computer. And when we looked at the hard drive on the computer, we saw this file called LOL. And then we clicked on the file and there were these disgusting graphic images of depictions, animated depictions of four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and six-year-olds having sex with each other. And it was anal, oral, threesomes, like anything you could imagine these kids were doing with each other. And then there was kids doing it with adults. And I'm, I'm just completely appalled at this point. So I called the detective on my rape case and I was like, you know, this, there's these really graphic images on this and, um, I need you, you know, like, do you need to look at this? Do you want this hard drive? And she's like, well, I don't know if animated, you know, is okay with Illinois law, basically. Like, I don't think that's an offense. I go, okay. I mean, I understand that. And she goes, but I want to see if there's anything else on it. So go ahead and give us the hard drive and I go, okay, well, do you want the computer that we looked on it? because we had told her like we looked at this stuff and she's like no I don't want the computer so we didn't give her the computer we didn't give her anything else so anyways so they tell me to go get an order of protection because they've at this point released Tom and the unfortunate part about was that was it this all happened on a Friday so I had to wait till Monday just to get that order of protection so he kept trying to come back into the house during that time saying he just wanted his stuff or whatever but obviously I don't trust him so that was a whole issue. So we waited till Monday. On Monday, 
I went to get my emergency order protection. It was immediately granted, especially given what he admitted to. So that was granted. Then on um, April 11th, we had the plenary order of protection. And the plenary order protection went right through as well because in court, when he was asked, like, did you, you know, did you admit to raping her? He said yes, because he did. So, I mean, the judge couldn't deny that. So he gave me an order of protection. And uh, his, he said that he had admitted to raping me so that I would break up with him, which didn't make any sense to anyone because he had text messages and Facebook messages to me begging me to stay with him and how in love with me he was and blah, blah, blah. And that I was, he even said in court, that I was the best thing that ever happened to him. So clearly, who wants to break up with somebody when you're even stating in court, when you're being accused of rape, that this person's the best thing that ever happened to them? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. So the judge rules that my kids are gonna be under the order of protection, um, and that Tom is going to have, they, what they did was they consolidated the order of protection case into a family court case. And so they decided that they would go to the next court date for Tom to get supervised visits. At least that's what my attorney told me. Well, go to the next court date. And at the next court date, um, my attorney calls me because I didn't go to the next court date because I was told I didn't have to. And my attorney tells me, she goes, um, I don't understand what's going on here at all, but they're not giving Tom supervised visits. And at this point, no psyche valves have been done. This man is admitting he has serious mental illnesses. You know, one of his text messages to me literally said that um, he was a danger of sexually assaulting my kids as well, in his own words, because I had, I said, um, you know, if, if this alternate personality could rape me, what could he do to the kids? And he literally stated the risk is worse to the kids because he loves me more than he loves the kids. Hmm. So, Yeah. It was, it was stunning, the evidence that we had in court. So we get, so she tells me basically that the judge has ruled that there's no good, there's not going to be any supervised visits. So the first time my daughter comes back from a supervised visit, my son was fine. There was nothing going on with my son, but my daughter um, was saying that her, um, her private area was hurting and it was, it was red and it was very irritated looking. And she had said that grandpa had touched her bathing suit zone, which is what I taught her for like how to say what your private area is. Because I had looked online and that was one of the terms being used as bathing suit zone. So she would just call it her bathing suit zone. Uh, now she calls it her private area, but before she ca called it her bathing suit zone. So she was like, grandpa's touching my bathing suit zone. And there's literally a video of her talking about how, you know, daddy hit her brother in the face and how grandpa touched her bathing suit zone and how grandpa hit her bathing suit zone and all these like really crazy allegations like she was saying so um she also had bruising she had like this yellow and gray bruising underneath her right butt cheek which was very large she had little bruises on the back of her legs she had um this really large purplish red gray kind of funky looking bruise on her lower back so I was immediately concerned I contacted her babysitter because her babysitter's friend or her babysitter's family are cops mm -hmm. and I was like well what should I do and she goes well you know just go and make a report about it because I was worried because I didn't want to upset the apple cart because the, the custody case so I go and make a report and I specifically tell them like I don't want this to be investigated I just want to you know report this basically and just have the police report 
And they're like, uh, well, with everything going on and the child pornography investigation and where the bruising is located on your daughter and everything else, we want to take her into, um, we want to take her into the hospital. So I agreed that she could go into the hospital. And so we went to the hospital and she saw, she was seen by a doctor and the doctor basically told me she didn't have any sexual abuse concerns. She had domestic abuse concerns, but she did not have sexual abuse concerns at that point because um, she had written contusion and domestic concerns. So I said, okay, well, if you don't have any sexual assault concerns, I don't see why we would do a rape kit. And the police were like begging me to do a rape kit and get one done. And the doctor's saying no. And the doctor is the medical professional. So I went with the doctor and it's 4 a.m. So I said, okay, we're going to go home. So we go home. And then this doctor by the name of Dr. Gregory calls me and she's like, um, I really think you should take your daughter in and have her seen by us. I saw the report from Northwest Community and I'm concerned. And I was like, okay, well, I can't even get her in there, you know, until like three days from now. And she said, that's fine. So she told me to come in three days later. So I came in three days later. And when I took my daughter there, um, she was acting very strange. She grabbed an attendant's breast. Then when she was on the like um, the bed kind of thing, uh, they were she didn't notice being anally swabbed at all. No reaction, didn't even notice it, didn't care. And then when they tried to check her bathing suit area, she was literally opening herself up for the doctor. And the doctor had to tell her stop and she would keep doing it. So it was very strange behavior that she was showing. And all of this was written down. All of it was marked down. All of it was taken to my lawyer. The video was taken to my lawyer. So my lawyer at this point is like, we need to do an emergency motion. We need to get her out of there. Because there was multiple DCFS investigations going on. There's a rape um, investigation going on. There's child pornography investigation going on. All of this is known to the GAL too. Mm -hmm. And the only thing with me at that point was I had had my psyche eval. And the only thing in my psyche valve was that I have PTSD, which was known to the court when I got my order of protection. It was already known I had PTSD. I even said that when I was doing the order of protection hearing. And the judge had given me custody knowing I had order of protection. So it was already known to the court when he gave custody, like what I have, which is why I don't understand how that was then used against me to take my kids. It doesn't make sense. So anyways, um, we go back into court for the emergency motion and the judge says that my daughter cannot be around her grandpa because of the stuff she's saying about grandpa. And then the lawyer pipes up and is like, well, Tom lives with his dad. And when the lawyer says this, he's like, oh, well, he can just go in another room. And that's literally what the judge said. He could just go in another room. It, everybody was flabbergasted. <laughs> so um, at that point, we have an evidentiary hearing scheduled for what was it? Uh, May 2nd, I want to say. So May 2nd, we go to the evidentiary hearing and it goes um, absolutely terribly because Julie Pirtle, GAL, completely takes over. She doesn't put forward any of the evidence that she was given regarding the child pornography. She doesn't put forward any of the evidence she was given regarding the bruising to my daughter. She doesn't put forward any of the evidence about the sexual assault concerns, the rape concerns, etc. And even Tom and his friend are saying that my daughter is acting out sexually for her age. And at this point, she was only three years old. So clearly that's a concern. And Julie Pirtle is just going off about how I have PTSD and how I was abused as a child. 
uh, basically making it sound like I'm just an alienating parent and I'm angry and I'm projecting my issues. And the judge is just like eating this up because Julie Pirtle was actually a family friend of the judges, which I didn't know until much later. So the Julie Pirtle is going into like graphic detail about what I went through as a kid. And, and I literally just, I had to walk out of the room because that was not important at all to what we were supposed to be talking about. So I got very angry. I walked out. I was, I couldn't even believe what I was hearing at that point. I was so frustrated. And, um, this was actually supposed to go on in chambers. My lawyer specifically asked that I see what was going on because she already was cued off to the fact that this woman was biased. So anyways, so my attorney comes over to me and we talk after court and she basically asked me to fire her. And I was like, I'm not going to fire you. Like, then I wouldn't have a lawyer. I don't want to fire you. And she, uh, she basically says like, well, they're not letting me present any evidence. So I don't know how I can help you. So I told her I'm not firing her. And that was that. And then a week later, she basically tells me that, um, she needs a thousand dollars a month from me. And I don't have a thousand dollars a month. Especially like if you're not doing anything, why would I pay you a thousand dollars a month? Doesn't make any sense. And you know, I'm a CNA. I didn't have that kind of money. I go, well, if that's the only option, then then I guess you are gonna have to withdraw because I don't have a thousand dollars a month to pay you. So she withdraws on the 15th. That's the only thing that's supposed to happen on the 15th. I'm at work on the 15th with my son. My daughter is at home with my roommates, and I get a call from my roommates saying that the police are there to take my kids. That they have an order from the judge and the GAL, both signed, John Dalton and Julie Pirtle, that they can legally take my children. Without cause, without reason, without justification, they can come in there and take my kids. So I'm talking to the cop on the phone because I'm like, what the heck is going on? And the cop had already spoken with me in regards to the sexual assault and then another issue um, where Tom had violated my order of protection by threatening me in the police station. So this, like, the guy was just like, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know. I'm going to call the FBI for you. I'm so confused. Like, just give, you have to give us your kids, though, because if you don't, it's going to be worse for you. And I, I was just like, well, I can't even get there until, like, 8 p.m. I'm at work right now. I'm on a live-in shift. Can you just give me till then? And it was noon. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, we can give you that time. So clearly, if they're going to give me that time, I'm not a danger to my kids, and they know that. Mm -hmm. So they give me till 8 p.m. I pack up the kids' bags. I make sure they've got everything they need. And then at 8 p.m., Tom and his family come pick up the kids. The police are there, and I just give them the kids. I don't freak out. I'm very calm about it. And that was that. So then um, I'm supposed to have, like, an evidentiary hearing because this was only a temporary seizure of the kids. So I'm supposed to have my day in court to defend myself. So I don't have an attorney. So I ask, you know, for time to be able to find an attorney. That's not granted to me. They don't care. They keep walking all over me. They had assigned a court supervisor, which was my best friend uh, slash our babysitter. And they didn't even let her know she was being assigned until after they did it. So she was with me and the kids when I would have my supervised visits because they made me have supervised visits. And I had supervised visits three days a week. It was like four hours a day, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I could only exercise Tuesday and Wednesday because Monday I had to work and I couldn't change my schedule as much as I tried to. I couldn't. So, <coughs> excuse me. 
So Tuesday and Wednesday, I would see the kids. And every single Tuesday and Wednesday, um, me and the court supervisor would notice there was bruising on my kids. My daughter would have like a busted lip, a partial black eye. She'd have bruising on her side. She'd have bruising on her, um, on her back, sometimes on her butt. Like she would always have bruises. And she would always say things like she fell into stuff. Like one time it was, I fell into a bench. Just, you know, very weird things. And we kept noticing like repeated bruising. My son, who was, um, he was one at that time, had this large yellow bruise on his forehead. And we were a bit concerned about that. But in addition to the bruising, you know, my daughter was stating like she was being touched by grandpa and she kept saying she was being touched by grandpa and that grandpa put mommy dad and mommy and daddy finger inside her and was saying all these really concerning, you know, sexual things, which uh, the court supervisor would keep reporting to the guardian litem and would keep reporting to DCFS and DCFS would do nothing because when there's a guardian litem on the case, DCFS goes by what the guardian litem says. Because the guardian litem is more important and has more authority than DCFS. So basically, she would keep getting them to close every single case, basically stating that she has jurisdiction and that the court has jurisdiction over them. Uh, despite this, there was multiple times where DCFS did removals, even with her protesting and with the judge protesting. So that just shows you how much danger my kids were in. So. Mm -hmm. In August, things start getting very bad. So in August, um, Tom messages me on Our Family Wizard that James is in the hospital. And I'm like, well, what, do you, what is James in the hospital for? And this is while I'm at work. He said that he has a prolapsed rectum. And at first, I'm not that concerned about that because, you know, it could happen to a kid. I understand that, like potty training or bowel issues, whatever it may be. But then he tells me that they've been in the hospital for three days. And I'm like, what? Because as a CNA, I know what a prolapse rectum is. You literally just take a glove, if it doesn't go back in itself, and you push it gently in, and that's the end of it. It's not something that you would be in a hospital for three days. So I call up a nurse, and I start talking to the nurse. And I was like, can you tell me what's going on here? I don't understand this. And she's like, it keeps coming out. We can't get it to stay in. He's had surgical procedures. And like, well, she actually said he had surgery. That's what her words were. He had mm -hmm. surgery. <clears throat> so at this point, I'm like, I need to go see my son. I, I need to see my son. So I'm contacting the guardian of I'm telling her I need to see my son. She's ignoring me. Um, I'm talking to Tom. He's actually responding to me. He finally says that I can go see him. So I'm literally on my way to see my son. And um, he messages me, oh, the guardian litem says you have to have um, your court supervisor with you. I was like, no, like, I can't. I can't do that right now. She's busy. I'm still coming to see my son. He has a serious medical condition that nobody seems to figure out how it happened. I'm going to see my son. And that's that. So I'm on my way to see my son. My boss is driving me because my boss cared very much about my son. And we get to the hospital. And... Um, I showed them my order of protection and everything else. And it's like, can I see my son now? And they were like, well, we're going to have the head of our pediatric department watch you with your kid. And I'm like, what? First of all, like, what kind of power does somebody have to make something like that happen? Like, mm -hmm. the whole PD, the, the head of the pediatric unit is going to supervise me and my kids. I mean, that, 
that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's somebody with connections to get that to happen. Definitely. So I'm, I'm with my kid, I'm with James and he's uh, all taped up. His buttocks is completely taped up. I'm being told he just had an enema. They have the whole food chart up on the board for him for the next day. So he's clearly staying over again. The nurse comes in. She tells me that he's prolapsed seven or I'm trying to remember how many times it was that day. Well, she had told me some in the morning and then she told me three more times. So I think it was a total of six to seven times that he had prolapsed that day because he just didn't have any anal tone. So it just kept coming out. Um, and I was just like, well, is he staying overnight? Cause I see the meal chart and go, she goes, yes, he is going to stay overnight. So they'd already decided he was going to stay overnight because they couldn't get the prolapse to stop. So after I leave with him, um, Tom tells me I have to talk to the social worker. I was like, well, why do I have to talk to the social worker? He goes, well, because you're going to say I abused him. And that thought had like never crossed my mind. I didn't accuse him of sexual abuse. I didn't even think about that. What I was thinking was possible neglect, but I never thought about abuse. So anyway, so he's like, I want you to talk to the social worker. So I go and talk to the social worker. And this woman is extremely young. Like she could not have been more than three years old. And I was only 22 at that time. She was skinny, blonde, and she had glasses, and she was very young. And when I was talking to her, I was like, well, did you report this to DCFS? And it was like, well, why would I, why would I report this to DCFS? I go, you have a child that has a prolapse rectum that's been in here for three days with no underlying conditions that you guys can think of that has like no anal tone at this point. Like you've had to have surgery and everything on him. And she's like, well, I see no reason to report this to DCFS. And I was just like, like, I, you know, I don't even remember what I said to her. I was so, I was so irritated at that point. I just walked away. Um, cause she goes, are, are you telling me how to do my job? And that's when I walked away. I just walked away real calmly. I didn't say anything to her and I just walked away. So then my boss is like, are you going to call DCFS? Like, well, why would I call DCFS at this point? They don't listen to me. They don't seem to care. They don't do anything for the kids. And you know, what's the point? And she goes, well, I'm going to call them. So she calls them and not even an hour after her call, all of a sudden my son is being emergency discharged from the hospital. So that's very suspicious Mm -hmm. because he was going to stay overnight and all of a sudden he's being emergency discharged from the hospital. So then Tom asked me, do you want to see James? And I thought that was weird too. I was like, well, yeah, of course I want to see the kids. And he goes, okay, well, I'm going to bring the kids over to the library. You can pick them up tomorrow. So I picked the kids up the next day and, uh, you know, and we pick them up. I'm changing James diaper and Sasha comes over, my daughter, and she's holding James' hand, which I thought was really strange because she's never done that. Mm-hmm. So while I'm changing his diaper, I mean, his anus is like this big around. It, it's huge. And it starts pulsing, like literally mm-hmm. like it's breathing. And I'm just like completely freaked out at this point. And like, I understand they were using like medical tools and stuff on him. So, you know, I'm like, well, maybe that's the reason why that happened. So. Um, I'm, you know, I'm still changing him. I finished changing him. My daughter tugs on me, basically saying she's got to go to the bathroom. So the court supervisor picks up James. We all go to the bathroom. She's outside the door with James. The door's open a crack and me and my daughter are in the bathroom. And uh, my daughter goes, someone hurt James. I go, who hurt James? And she goes, grandpa put a toothbrush in James' butt and had me pull it out. Uh, he was screaming and crying. I tried to carry him off the bed, but grandpa pushed me down. 
And she said this so normally, so nonchalantly, like it was as if she was telling me what she ate for breakfast. It was the scariest thing. And I'm just looking at her completely dumbfounded, like, what did you just say? Like, I can't believe this just came out of your mouth. And um, then after that, she was like dancing and playing and stuff and acting very odd. So, you know, DCFS calls me up and they're like, oh, you know, we're, we're working on this report regarding, um, you know, such, uh, regarding James. And uh, do you have anything to add? And of course, like I told them, like what was said. And um, then I had to give the kids back. So we go to the library. Tom takes the kids back. And then I get a message on Our Family Wizard that DCFS is taking custody of both kids and that I can't know where they are. And supposedly neither can he. And that was that. So I was like, well, am I being investigated? And every time I asked DCFS if I was being investigated, they said no. And legally, they have to tell you if you're being investigated. So I called up all the different agencies of DCFS around my surrounding area, and they all said I wasn't being investigated. So at this point, I'm thinking, like, my kids are basically missing because nobody will tell me what's going on. There's no court order saying I can't see my kids. I should still be getting my supervised visits at this point, and I'm not. So I go to the pallets, and they all told me there was no investigation against me. So at that point, I had serious concerns regarding my son's health, and I had concerns, you know, that my kids were missing at this point. You know, I did have a... A social worker by the name of Karen Johnson Wren. She called me at nine o'clock at night, which I thought was really odd, mm-hmm. saying basically that she couldn't tell me where my kids were and that I did this all but to myself and was just very rude. And I was like, Who do you think you are? And she's like, I'm DCFS. And like this woman was so crazy that she even filed a police report saying I was threatening her. And I said nothing of any sort threatening her. All I did was ask her where my kids were. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I go to the Palatine Police Department. I'm like, I want to see in paperwork that my kids are legally able to be with DCFS right now, that there was a signed safety plan Mm -hmm. and that there's proof of this, you know, legal seizure. Otherwise, it's an illegal seizure. And the Palatine police were just pretty much laughing at me. And there was this one detective by the name of Detective Leiden. And he goes, well, you won't be the first person to come look for your kids and you won't be the last. And he refused to show me any paper at all. So at this point, they're just like, well, you know, you have a court date coming up anyway. So why don't you just see what happens to the court date? So I leave and I go to my next court date where they don't let me present any evidence. And at this point, I had evidence of real children on the um, child pornography um, hard drive because my therapist who happened to work for the Elgin Police Department she had actually informed me to FOIA that piece of paperwork. And so I went to FOIA that piece of paperwork and it stated that there was over 700 missing children, 422 children that were um, recognized, 47 that were identified, and then 280 children that were unrecognized. So brand new victims. Mm-hmm. And I kept trying to tell the judge about this and the GAL was not listening. The judge was not listening, did not care. And um, they're talking about my son and they're talking about how his condition actually got worse, but they're not telling me what's going on. And I'm telling the judge, like, this is just not normal. I mean, you're not in hospital multiple days for a prolapse rectum Mm -hmm. and that they can't figure out what's going on with you. And he basically made a joke about, and he's like, well, should I survey the court about all their bowel habits? And it was just, it was disgusting. It was horrible. And so this was August 14th. 
And the reason this is so interesting is because I later found out through my son's medical records that August 13th, my son's prolapse rectum had become the size of an orange, had become completely incarcerated, and he was dying from this condition. Um, so they already knew August 13th that my son had a high probability of dying because even it stated even with surgery, even with corrective measures, he had a high risk of morbidity, mortality, and um, complications. So mm. all of that is basically death um, and a very short life. So they, they knew this, the guardian litem knew this because she had those medical records. DCFS had those medical records. The police were aware, everyone was aware. It was the judge aware or not? I don't know. I don't wanna say, cause I don't know for sure. I would think so, but I can't state that legally, you know, but the guardian litem for sure was aware. So she is lying and she's coming up with reasons why I shouldn't be able to see medical records for my child at this point. So she's just like, well, Tom should have all the medical records and only Tom should be able to send Kara what medical records for James. And I'm like, this is really odd. And then she says she wants me to be supervised by like a government agency to be with my child. I'm like, well, why would I agree to that? I'm not a danger to my kids. I've never been a danger to my kids. And then his attorney actually says the strangest thing. His attorney pipes up and he says, well, we don't want her to find further evidence of molestation. Now think about those words, further evidence of molestation. So he's already stating there is evidence of molestation, mm. but yet they're saying they don't want me to see my kid because of that. So how is that not obstruction of justice mm -hmm. right there? Um, so the judge goes, goes with everything the GAL is saying, um, says that I can't see my kids now unless I want to agree to um, this, uh, this, this uh, supervised visits or whatever with the government agency. And I'm refusing to do it because I know that if I sign that I need this type of supervision, like I'm never going to get custody of my kids, mm -hmm. you know, that there's no way. So I'm just like, no, I'm not going to sign it. And they all want me to sign it. And they're all mad that I'm not signing it, but I don't sign it. So I didn't see my kids for three months because I refused to sign that. Cause I basically, I figured, you know what, this is, you know, the short game, but it will help me in the long run. And it will give the kids a better life and give me a better life. Cause I didn't understand just how severe my son's condition was. Cause I didn't know anything about the medical records until I was able to get them later. So at that point, I was being told that my son's prolapse had totally been cured and he's fine and there's no more issues with him. That was what they were all pushing the narrative as. Mm -hmm. So three months later, I get a call, worst day of my life, October 31st, um, while I'm at a night shift, probably about 10 o'clock at night, um, between 10 and 10.30, and the doctor calls me and he goes, hi, uh, you know, I'm from Northwest uh, Community Hospital. I was like, hello. And he goes, I need you to come to the hospital. Your son is very sick. And I'm immediately thinking to myself, all right, something must severely be wrong because my son was very sick before and I had to be supervised, but now I don't need a supervisor. I don't need anything. So um, I call up a lift. I get to the hospital. My mom meets me there and um, we are greeted by this, like um, basically an assistant. And she takes us into a room and the room is empty. 
And I look at this empty slab and I'm like, where is my son? Mm. And uh, the doctor just looks down at the ground and he says he didn't make it. Mm. And I just, I start, I lose it. I literally lost it. I was like, what do you mean he didn't make it? There's like nothing wrong with him other than a prolapse rectum. Where is my son? What's going on? Mm -hmm. And I'm just, you know, I just don't understand it. And I was, and um, they can't tell me anything. They keep saying they don't know. They tell me some stupid story about how he was given cough medicine, which didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And they're like, do you want to see him? And I'm like, of course I want to see my son. And I'm holding my son and, uh, I start noticing like there's all these red marks on his stomach and I was like what are these red marks on his stomach and the uh, nurse just goes well that's just what happens when someone dies and she didn't know my background I am a CNA I've seen people die I'm like that's not rigor mortis mm -hmm. no it's not and she just uh she didn't say anything to me she's kind of looked away and I'm holding my son and uh I, at one point I just, I had to give him back because it was just too painful and I had to get some air and step outside. And, uh, before that happened, the cops were all lined up against the wall and I just was screaming at them. I go, you could have stopped this. You could have prevented this. Like with as many times my daughter was making disclosures with as many bruises as you saw with everything you saw, you could have done something. And they're all just staring at the, at the ground, not able to say anything to me just looking sad and um I walked out and I got some air and next thing I know I come back inside and they tell me I have to leave they won't let me see my son again they won't let my mom see my son my grandmother who was on the way can't see my son anymore and they just tell us we have to leave so we all left very uh disheartened and I go into court the next day or it was like maybe two days later I don't remember and I'm basically begging to see my daughter at this point because my son just died. Mm -hmm. And Judge Cruz is now the new judge on the case. So Judge Dalton recused himself on um, October 10th. So Judge Dalton recused himself October 10th. Judge Cruz took over October 10th. And Julie Pirtle said, it was said that Julie Pirtle wouldn't do any more work on the case. And I want to say October 18th which was weird. And then on the 25th of October, six days before my son died, she asked to be emergency removed from the case, which my theory is she didn't want to be held responsible because she knew he was going to die. And why I say that is because there was already um, a large possibility that he was going to die. And they knew that back in August. So it seems like this was all very premeditated um, to me and organized and it was organized very carefully, mm -hmm. um, among the GAL and others. So anyways, um, going to court, begging to see my daughter, the judge literally says, no, he says, well, you are all over social media and you're doing social media stuff. So I'm not letting you see your daughter. And in, unless you agree to supervised visitation. Oh. So at that point, I get a lawyer and we go into court and the lawyer is like, he's got child pornography. He's admitted to raping her. Like, what more do you need? Let her see her daughter. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is ridiculous. She didn't say that, but that's how it, it, it came across. Like she said, mm -hmm. there, where's the humanity? That was something she did say. 
And uh, he was like, well, I'll, you know, I'll let her see her daughter um, with her mother as the supervisor, which made absolutely no sense because how is my mom a supervisor? So they had me see my daughter at Barnes and Noble for like a week. And um, after that was over, they all of a sudden gave me overnight visits. So this is without a new GAL, without a 604B. And this was, the GAL was literally saying like, I would murder my kids. So it just made no sense that we go from Kara's this insane, crazy person who's going to murder her kids. My, like the GAL literally was telling my therapist that. And then when my therapist said, what evidence do you have that she would do that? And the GAL was silent. Julie Pertle was absolutely silent. She could come up with anything. My therapist was so astounded by what she was saying and why she was accusing me of this because she said, I fit the perfect idea of somebody who would do something like this. That was her reasoning. And so my therapist actually wrote a whole letter documenting the conversation because she was just floored. Like she even was just like, does this woman have mental issues? Like this doesn't make any sense. Um, she also questioned the personal relationship between her and Tom because she was protecting him during the whole phone call. And she didn't understand that either, especially given what had already happened and what had transpired. So that all happened. And, um, that, uh, I'm given overnights, like I said, with, with my daughter, everything's going fine. I have like three and a half days. He has three and a half days, but he wasn't even really having three and a half days because DCFS had uh, given his mother custody. So basically I was sharing custody of my daughter with his mother, which didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. I should have just been given custody at that point, especially if they felt like he was a danger. So it didn't make any sense at all. No. So there, an autopsy done by the state and they used a fellow who isn't someone trained um, in a profession is just somebody learning a profession. And he was a fellow in forensic pathology. Well, according to the, the law of Cook County, you have to be a forensic medical examiner to perform an autopsy. So that didn't make any sense either. So he states that my son um, died from undetermined natural causes, which made absolutely no sense. So I actually had a call with this guy. Um, but I'll get to that in a minute. So anyways, that was their determination. We go to court. I asked to have a forensic autopsy done, an independent autopsy done. The Judge Cruz grants that, which legally he should have never granted that because he's not a um, probate court judge. And he even stated that on the stand. He goes, I shouldn't even be doing this because I'm not a probate court judge, but I'm going to do it anyways. So he grants me to have this independent autopsy. And I had hired an amazing woman who had been doing this for 11 years. She was very skilled at what she does. So she comes up with preliminary findings and her preliminary findings are that my son had a deep tissue back bruise, um, that he had bruising around his nose and his mouth and she had concerns of suffocation. That was her preliminary findings that she had concerns that my son was suffocated. So this was brought to the, the Palatine police. Her preliminary findings were brought to the Palatine police and everybody was notified of her preliminary findings as well as DCFS and the court, whatever. Um, but the other strange thing was when she was given my son, he didn't have his heart, his brain, or any of his neck organs. And I have these recorded calls and I've actually posted them before. So everyone knows like this is accurate information because I have it recorded. 
So I, I was like, is that normal? Like, why would he not have those parts? And she goes, did they tell you they were going to do that? And I go, no, mm-hmm. I had no idea. She goes, I can understand the heart and the brain if they're doing further testing. She goes, but they would have absolutely no reason to remove the neck organs. So I call up John Walsh, who was the medical examiner on the case. And when I call up John Walsh, I'm just like, um, why, you know, did you do, did you review the medical records? And he goes, no, they're not important. And I go, did you look at the EMS report? They're not important. I go, why did you remove my son's neck organs? And he goes, I didn't remove his neck organs. They're in him. I'm like, no, they're not. And I know that for a fact. He goes, well, what neck organ are you looking for? As if it was like some kind of buffet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all of them, none of his neck organs are inside of him. And he goes, oh, well, uh, let me, let me check that. So he starts fumbling, pretending to check something. He goes, oh, uh, all of his neck organs were taken for an upper respiratory infection, which makes no sense because you would just mm-hmm. do cultures. You wouldn't remove the neck organs for an upper respiratory infection. Nobody would do that. Makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I'm becoming like really suspicious and really confused. And they wouldn't even let my forensic pathologist view his neck organs, his brain or his heart until almost a year later. It, it, we were fighting it. The only way we were able to do it was because there was a, um, a law firm that got us able to do that, that enabled for that to happen. And the only way she was able to do it was they forced her to go to the Cook County Medical Examiner's office and be supervised by one of their people to look at these organs, which also didn't make any sense. And while they were doing this, like they didn't give her any proof that those belonged to my son. There was no DNA testing, nothing. So she finishes up viewing everything and she sends me a report. And her conclusion is that my son's death was caused by a spinal cord injury, which is very interesting because there's no mention in the police report of a fall. There's no mention of an auto accident. There's no mention of anything that could cause a spinal cord injury. The police report says that my son was found laying on a bed. You can't get a spinal cord injury from laying on a bed. It doesn't make any sense. So all these things are brought to Judge Cruz's attention. And he's ignoring everything. He's ignoring the child pornography. He's ignoring my rape. He's ignoring my son's death. And his only reasoning as to why he's saying that is, oh, well, there's no charges. Okay, well, anyone who knows anything about homicides is they take a really long time to charge them, um, to get a complete case together. I mean, for homicide cases, you're talking between two to 10 years sometimes. So that didn't make any sense to me either. Why would you not just be safe about it? So all of a sudden, the DCFS investigations dropped. Um, The police are saying they're going by the... Uh, examination of the state, ignoring the examination of an actual professional. And then they're saying that um, they want me to sign 50-50 custody agreement, which I kept saying, no, I'm not doing that. It doesn't make any sense to do that. Especially when my daughter is still having her issues and everyone, you know, my daughter's mm-hmm. having her issues. There's these conflicting autopsy reports. Why would I ever sign this? And then you have the child pornography on top of it. Like, why would I sign a 50-50 agreement? And um, what happened was they kept pressuring my attorney to try to get me to sign it. And every time I would tell my attorney, no, 
And I had a really, I have a really good attorney. It's the same attorney that I've had now for over a year, almost two years. And, um, you know, he's, he's really good at what he does. And, uh, he kept sending me the agreement cause that's what they wanted me to sign. And I would just say, no, I'm not going to sign this. And, um, it got to the point where this judge, judge Renee Cruz was threatening me with six months of jail, claiming that he was using and enforcing a court order from August, which was when Dalton was presiding. And the court order was that I couldn't post on social media. Well, the only way I've gotten anywhere and only reason I've gotten to where I am today and have my daughter is because of social media. So, I mean, I didn't stop it during that entire time and nobody threw me in jail. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden they're using this order as a way to try to force me to sign this agreement. So they tell me they're going to take my daughter, that I'm going to sit in jail for six months. It's a civil thing. So I wouldn't even get a jury. And at that point, I don't know what to do because my daughter then would be with a pedophile full time. So I could either do 50-50 or I could have her with a pedophile full time. It's a mother's worst nightmare. It is. So I signed the agreement, literally co-parenting with my rapist, a pedophile, and the possible murderer and rapist of my son. So here's where it gets really interesting. So when I signed this agreement, the first thing I did was get my son's medical records. Because the only way I was able to get medical records before was if Tom would send them to me. Well, Tom was cherry picking what he was choosing to send to me. Mm -hmm. So once I got all of the medical records, things started to get very clear. And I could basically see that my son was completely removed from um, Tom's care. He wasn't even able to visit him in the hospital. He was only able to uh, make medical decisions for him. He wasn't able to go visit him that they had serious concerns that my son was anally sexually penetrated um, and that he had a dilated uh, anus. He had no rectal tone. He had reddening. He had swelling. He had every single sign of a child that had been sexually abused. And there was three um, professionals, uh, a counselor, um, a doctor, um, a child protection, uh, sane nurse, and they all came up with that is what they believed happened. And if my daughter disclosed, it was even more likely that that's what happened. And my daughter had been disclosing. Mm-hmm. She'd been disclosing for over a year. So that was basically the conclusion that, that they came to. And, you know, the police were called, DCFS was called, everybody was notified of these concerns, which means the GAL was as well. And not once not in court, not in her GAL report, did she ever bring up that there were concerns that my son was raped? Not once. So it gets even more interesting. So I start posting these medical records and I start asking questions. And while I'm asking these questions and I'm posting these medical records, I'm calling the police like, why didn't you arrest um, this man? for what he did to my son, either the grandpa or the father, because those are the two suspects. And the police tell me that they tried to, they claim that they went to the state's attorney and they write me this letter saying that they went through felony review and 
with felony review, what you have to do is you have to bring on your entire case to them mm-hmm. and you have to bring witnesses and you have to go through all of these different things. Uh, it's not just, oh, let me call you on the phone and tell you a few details. That's not a felony review. And that was what the letter had stated is what this detective, the name is Detective Vice, that he just called felony review and gave them a few details, which that's not the appropriate procedure. So then the letter goes on to say that they've exhausted all ways to go about prosecuting or trying to get this charged for my son. And they're sorry, but the case is going to be closed. So I thought that was very odd and very suspicious. Um, So currently where we're at right now is I have 50-50 custody of my daughter still. I am still very vocal about what's going on. She's also been vocal, and um, we have a court date on the 6th of October. We're finally doing things that are going to help her. Um, Like, I'm being believed by multiple parties now in the people that can actually help her, and everyone is starting to see what has been going on and understanding that my daughter is in danger and is in trouble. And um, we've done multiple protests at the Palatine Police. Each time we do protests, we get uh, between 20 to 30 people. It's been a lot of, there's been a lot of support, which I really do appreciate. And we have another new judge. So Judge Cruz also recused himself, which I find interesting. So these, these are all the people that have just disappeared. So first we have John Dalton. Then we have... Julie Pirtle. And not only is Julie Pirtle removed from my case, she's been completely removed from the Kane County 16th Circuit GAL list. So her and her partner, Julia Pucci, has been completely removed from the 16th Circuit Kane County um, GAL list. So Dalton, Julie Pirtle, Julia Pucci, the medical examiner is gone from Cook County. So John Walsh is gone. Judge Cruz removed from family court. John Dalton also removed from family court. So not just my case, but all of family court. Um, Judge Cruz is now presiding over traffic cases. John Dalton is now presiding over evictions. Then you have Stephen Bratcher, who retired at the ripe age of 50. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, which makes absolutely no sense. Like he had just become a commander. And then he retired. And this was the same officer who had wrote that um, he had never received any preliminary findings from my forensic pathologist, which my forensic pathologist wrote in an email that she gave them all of her findings. And so he's gone too, which I find very suspicious. Um, So you have all these different parties like fleeing, leaving, losing their jobs Mm -hmm. with no viable explanation. And what I find even stranger is you have a child, my daughter, who is repeatedly making abuse disclosures since this has all happened. Um, The most recent one was of March. Um, And yet there's no GAL. There's no 604B evaluator. It's not being handled like a normal custody case at all. And at this point, no one's even really making money off this custody case either. 
So it, the whole thing just seems like it's in a standstill. And we literally tried like for six months to not even go to court. And we still have to go to court because my ex would just not agree to something that has been recommended for all by all professionals that would be in the best interest of my daughter. So I found that very interesting too. But um, I basically have a GoFundMe set up for my daughter to help her get out of this situation, to be with me, to do an emergency motion, full custody. And uh, that has her picture, but it's blurred out. And it's been astonishing. We have made over $26,000 on that. And the goal is 30. The goal is 30,000. So that is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, We, our page is justice for James. We have over 15,000 followers. We're almost at 16,000 followers. Um, Our other page, it's a group actually is James needs justice. And that is almost at 2000 um, followers. So it's just been, it's been a journey and it's been amazing. And I'm very appreciative of everyone who has helped and has been there. And um, I'm so appreciative to share my story on this platform Um, as confusing as it probably may be. And there's a lot of twists and turns, Mm -hmm. but uh, I hope that I was able to convey it in a way that was understandable for the public. Kara, you did that beautifully. Thank you. I mean, uh, to tell the story of what you have been through, your daughter, your son, also your mother. I'm sure she's watching this and wondering why is this happening to you and her grandchildren? And, you know, how is she, how are both of you doing now? I'm, you know, I'm getting by and, you know, I have my daughter to think of obviously, and she's Mm -hmm. always the first person on my mind whenever I am having a hard day of like, just push through, get through it and, you know, try to make the most of today. And my mom has been extremely supportive. Um, she watches every interview I've done, every video, and she's been, she's stood by my side and she's incredible with my daughter and she's always there to help me out if I need her help. Um, and she's amazed. She tells me all the time how proud she is of me and what I've accomplished. I mean, I've actually, I've looked for stories like mine. I've looked for successes of judges stepping down mm-hmm. and GALs getting removed from the GAL list and all these different things that have happened with uh, my case. And I honestly have not found very many. Mm-hmm. I've found people removing themselves, but not completely losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think that also it's, it's, that's something that keeps me going is that I'm being validated. And, um, you know, my ex actually has had charges pressed on him too. Mm-hmm. So I also feel like, it, and one of the charges is something very simple. It's just, he could not control himself on our parenting app. He kept harassing me, even on our son's birthday. He couldn't help but tell me what a piece of garbage I was and that everything I was doing was a joke and I was a clown and like all these just horrible things that you don't say to a mother of your child who is hurt and is broken because your child is dead. Mm-hmm. And my ex has shown no emotion through all of this. He's shown no care for his son. He actually even stole the money that I sent him for our son's um, headstone. Mm-hmm. And the way, I, the way I actually found out about that was his mom kept commenting on my Facebook post. 
And I told her, I was like, well, what about the money I gave you for the headstone? And she goes, what money? I've never seen any money from you. So I, that's how I knew he pocketed the money and just had his mom buy the headstone or his father or whoever it was that bought the headstone. But $500 got pocketed for his own son's headstone. Mm -hmm. So that just shows you like how much he cared about his son. He didn't. Mm -mm. And, you know, others have reached out to me and have literally told me like he never wanted his son. And I was like, what do you mean he never wanted his son? That was the child that we planned. How could he not want his son? And uh, they, they go, you guys planned? And I was like, yeah, we planned on having him. I mean, mm -hmm. we did research and everything to see how it would benefit Sasha to have a sibling. Mm -hmm. And he wanted a son. Like he kept, he was upset with me actually um, that we had uh, our daughter because he wanted our daughter to be a boy. He wanted mm -hmm. them to carry on the family name basically. So when he was telling even the guardian of the that he didn't want our son, I was, I was shocked. And I was honestly very angered and appalled because, I mean, James was the sweetest, just bounciest, most loving, incredible child ever. He was, he was perfect. He was my baby. And he meant everything to me. And I just don't understand how someone that special couldn't mean something to his own father. Like, I don't understand how he couldn't love him. I mean, James, everybody he met, it was an immediate attachment, an immediate connection. He just, he made people that didn't even, you know, care about animals fall in love with him. So it's just, I don't understand why his father never saw what I saw. And it, it honestly breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. I am so sorry. Mm. Now, you mentioned another website or on Facebook that has just your name if people want to contact you. Oh, yeah. That's just my um, my public profile. It's just Kara Wachowski. And I have a lot of people like ask me, like, can you need to help me? I need help. I need help. And mm -hmm. what, what people don't understand is I really can't help you. The most I can do is share your story if mm -hmm. it's credible. If you have the documents, I can do that. But I can do all the work for you. What mm -hmm. I've done, I have put out a formula on my pages. Like I have shown people what to do. You have to state what's happening. And then you have to also provide documentation. If you do not provide the doc documentation, you just look like somebody bitching on Facebook. Like, mm -hmm. excuse my language, but that's what you look like. That's and that's why so many parents are unsuccessful. Because they'll say all these horrible things about their ex. And they'll never back it up with actual documentation. Like I have posted the child pornography. I have posted the uh, text statements of him stating he raped me. You know, I've posted every single claim I've ever stated, I can back off. Mm -hmm. And that's what these, these parents aren't doing. They're just complaining about their exes and that's never gonna work. And that's gonna look bad in court. Mm -hmm. That's gonna look bad to other people. And you're not going to get the audience you want. You're not gonna get the effect that you want. The other thing I do is I share to many, many different groups. Mm -hmm. I don't just share to my own pages and my own um, groups. I share to many groups. Like I'll share to all the what's happening groups. So if you have like what's happening, Illinois, what's happening, Batavia, what's happening, St. Charles, what's happening, whatever, because those are sites where people want to know what's going on in that mm -hmm. town or what's going on in, you know, that surrounding area. So I'll post to those sites as well. It's all about creating an audience. It's all about reaching out. And it's all about putting the information out there as concise 
and clearly as possible. The other thing I've noticed in where people fail is they get too emotional. And mm -hmm. I completely understand like these are extremely emotional things. Mm -hmm. But if I was on here right now and I was just bawling my eyes out during the whole time I'm doing this interview, it wouldn't do anything for anyone. Because if I'm just bawling my eyes out and screaming during the entire interview, nobody's going to get anything out of it. You know, so I try to be as concise and clear as possible when I do these interviews. So the only time I really like choke up and I start breaking down is when I talk about the hospital visit with my son and when I had to, to hold his dead body because mm. that was literally the, the worst day of my life. I just, um, mm. it just, it didn't even feel real. That's mm. how traumatic it was like you just go out of your body when something like that happens because you just can't handle it. your brain is not able to process it i cannot imagine you you did say you mentioned something about um studying to become a forensic i can't remember what you said oh um a criminal profiler criminal profile okay yeah i think you should i think you'd be very very good i would like i love it you know, I've always been extremely interested in like what makes somebody do something so horrible, like what makes somebody tick like that. And uh, that's why I got very interested in that. I, I studied like serial killers at a pretty young age. I was very interested in like why Ted Bundy did what he did and Jeffrey Dahmer mm -hmm. and all these individuals. And honestly, you know, with what has happened through all of this, I feel like, you know, my ex is that caliber of a person. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even worse because they didn't touch kids. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like somebody who could sexually assault a child and murder a child is just not even human. Mm -mm. And I mean, they're not, I, I don't know how you could do that to a child. A child has never done anything to anyone. You know, a child is completely innocent. And my son at that point would have been one. Mm. He wasn't even two until his birthday. That was on October 6th. So in August, he was still one. So how anyone could do that to a one-year-old, like that person is not a person. Mm -mm. No, uh, I don't even think they're sane themselves. No. I, th I think um, they're beyond help though, because I don't see how anyone could ever help or rehabilitate somebody who mm -mm. can do such horrifying things. No, I don't think so. I don't think they're rehabilitatable. No. You know, I I hope justice is brought forth very soon. I do too, because somebody somebody needs to legally pay for this. I mean, mm. this this has been a tragedy, and it cannot go without punishment at this point. Exactly. James deserves justice. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I will put these links in the podcast notes. Okay. I'll have you on as a return guest if you like to keep us updated. Sure. Of course. Okay. Definitely. Hey, well, don't jump off. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again with Kara and other guests in the future. Thank you again, Kara Witkowski. Thank you.